0: Welcome to Skim This. President Biden just submitted his self-review. And while he's giving himself some A's, we'll give you his real report card for his first 100 days in office. Also on the show, we're breaking down the newly released census data and the fight between two tech giants. Hint, if you're seeing pop-ups on your iPhone this week, you've got a front row seat. Later, we've got the latest on India's battle with COVID and what the rest of the world is doing to help. We also spoke to an expert about combating vaccine hesitancy here in the US and why celeb-focused PSAs are only half the battle. And does the phrase bedtime procrastination resonate with you? We'll break down the concept and hopefully help you catch some Zs. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. Today marks 100 days since Joe Biden stepped into his job as president. And while the first 100 days is something a lot of people tend to pay attention to, it's definitely up for debate whether making such a big deal about this is even helpful. You could say 100 days is totally arbitrary and that any significant legislation or accomplishment takes time. But you could also argue 100 days is kind of a make-or-break period and one that sets the tone for what's to come for the rest of someone's presidency. Biden himself has tried to own his first 100 days narrative, including during a joint address to Congress this week, where he touted some of his accomplishments.
1: Now, after just 100 days, I can report to the nation, America is on the move again. The economy created more than 1,300,000 100,000 new jobs in 100 days.
0: And also gave some hints about what he's planning. We need to ensure greater equity and
1: opportunity for women. And while we're doing this, let's get the Paycheck Fairness Act to my desk as well. (laughs) Equal pay. They spent much too long.
0: So let's roll with the premise here and look back at the promises Biden's kept, not kept, or is still working on in 100 seconds. Let's start with COVID. Biden took office pledging to distribute 100 million vaccine doses in 100 days, and he more than doubled that. He also pitched a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill and initially wanted $2,000 stimulus checks and a $15 minimum wage within that bill too. This one was a partial success. What's the sound effect for that? While Congress did pass a $1.9 trillion relief bill, the minimum wage increase was left out, and stimulus checks were trimmed to 1,400 bucks. And this is where Biden's 100-day agenda goes in two directions. Things he said he'd do on his own, he's largely done, like rejoining the World Health Organization and the Paris Climate Agreement. Undoing President Trump's travel ban on several Muslim-majority countries and his ban on transgender people serving in the military. But some things Biden said he'd do on his own, he hasn't. Like creating a National Police Oversight Commission. Instead, he's now supporting a policing bill in Congress that's currently in limbo. Which brings us to the other things Biden said he'd do with Congress's help, most of which hasn't happened yet. Like requiring background checks for all gun sales, enshrining a woman's right to abortion into law, creating a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, and providing universal pre-K and making two years of community college tuition-free. Some of those things could still get done, but ambitious laws historically get harder to pass the more time passes in a new administration. Which means people hoping for more big moves from Biden may want to watch what he does via executive orders. He could erase student debt or put more restrictions on guns. And foreign policy decisions, like ending the war in Afghanistan or negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran, are things he can also do on his own. So, regardless of whether this presidential honeymoon phase is over, Biden's still got more than 1,300 days left in his presidential term. So, watch this space. All right, let's get to a couple of the headlines from the week's news and give you a little bit of context. First up,
1: After months of delay, the U.S. Census Bureau has released data from its 2020
0: census count. Remember the census? It's that questionnaire you filled out last year. But those five or ten minutes of your time actually had a big impact on the future of the country. We're not being dramatic here. The census is a huge undertaking. And not only does it provide a ton of info about the makeup of the country, it also affects the balance of power in Congress. That's because the census helps determine how many seats each state has in the House. The census counts the population, and then House seats are assigned based on who lives where. Now the results are in, and six states, including Texas and Florida, will gain at least one seat, while seven others, including New York, Michigan, and California, each lost a seat. We're not going to make this a statistics lesson, but one of the most important takeaways from the census data is that the American South and West are gaining more political power because their populations keep growing. The other thing to note the states that lost seats were mostly firmly Democratic or lean that way. So this census could impact whether the Dems hold on to their majority in the House after the 2022 midterm elections our next headline is kind of a PSA. That cicada swarm we told you about a few weeks ago? Well, it's starting. Context, please. The once every 17-year group of cicadas, affectionately known as Brood 10, have touched down in DC and Virginia. Warm weather in the area meant some cicadas decided to show up early for the party. And while they aren't everywhere just yet, If you live outside of the DC area, you should also start bracing for their arrival. If you're thinking WTF is this cicada swarm, check out our show from April 8th, where we give you the skim on Brood 10. Our final headline has to do with a Silicon Valley fight that's gone global. Apple is shaking up the tech industry with a new privacy feature that allows users to decide how they want their personal information handled. Here's the context. This week, Apple rolled out a new software update. It's called iOS 14.5, and it's giving Apple users more control over their privacy through something called app tracking transparency. That feature allows iPhone users to decide whether they want to share the equivalent of their user ID, which tech companies use to target ads. And instead of this feature being buried somewhere on your phone, it's actually going to pop up and be like, Hey, do you really want this app tracking you, including on other apps and websites? While this rollout seems like a win for user privacy, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg is hitting unfriend.
1: Apple has every incentive to use their dominant platform position to interfere with how our apps and other apps work.
0: Zuckerberg's frustration here might have to do with the fact that Facebook's business model is largely built around targeted advertising. Basically, Facebook sells other companies' personalized info about you that they've learned by tracking you with their app. So giving people a very conscious choice to opt in or opt out of being tracked could be bad news for Facebook's business. In fact, Zuck is saying they expect up to 80% of users to hit no thanks to being tracked. In addition to that possibly hurting Facebook's ad revenues, he also pointed out this could also affect the bottom line of businesses who use Facebook to find customers. Apple CEO Tim Cook's response, you rang? Cook is trying to position Apple as the tech company who cares about your privacy. And despite the fact that Apple has dealt with privacy issues in the past, he hasn't held back from throwing shade at Facebook.
1: If a business is built on misleading users, on data exploitation, on choices that are no choices at all, then it does not deserve our praise. It deserves reform. At its foundation, ATT is about returning control to users, about giving them a say over how their data is handled.
0: We'll continue to grab our popcorn and watch the sparks fly in Silicon Valley, but if you have any other questions about how the privacy update affects you, head to the Skims Instagram page, where we've got the deets. On the podcast Full Release with Samantha B, Samantha B and her amazing guests talk about current events, politics, and more with the signature humor and witty banter you know from her TV show. Think Jane Fonda, Alana Glazer, and many more. They play games that reveal how deeply competitive she actually is. And we're not gonna lie, it's a little intimidating. Because everything in 2021 is better than 2020. This year, you can expect even more fun and thought-provoking interviews. Check out Full Release with Samantha B and subscribe now on Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen. By now, you've probably heard about the COVID crisis unfolding in India. We wanna warn you, a lot of what you're gonna see here is disturbing. I'm in the Simapuri cemetery in Delhi. This is one of a handful of cemeteries
2: that are working almost round the clock.
1: The entire system is inundated with patients. Our critical care units are running up to 100% capacity.
0: This isn't even a hospital. It's a Sikh temple where they're just helping out with oxygen
2: and basic care. And people just keep coming and coming and coming.
0: Let's step back for a second. India had been doing relatively okay through the pandemic. Cases peaked back in September and steadily fell until this spring. Public health experts say maybe people had a false sense of security. People went to religious gatherings and weddings and also political rallies for Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who as recently as January had said, we've defeated COVID. But beginning in February, COVID cases started to rise again and the government didn't seem to care. In February, India's health minister attended an event that was promoting an herbal medicine that could supposedly prevent and cure COVID, despite the Indian government previously saying, that's totally not true. That same month, Prime Minister Modi's ruling party passed a resolution backing up his previous claims about India's victory over COVID. Meanwhile, cases have only continued to go up, and in recent days, India started setting and breaking global records for new infections.
1: India has set another global record in coronavirus cases, reporting almost 380,000 new infections in the last day.
0: Now, India's healthcare system can't keep up. News outlets are full of stories of sick patients being turned away from hospitals, which are running out of beds and oxygen. Desperate families are taking to Twitter to try to find ICU spots or oxygen tanks. More than 3,000 people are dying daily, and experts think that's a serious undercount. Instead of facing up to its past mistakes, Prime Minister Modi's government is cracking down on its critics. In the past week, it's been ordering social media sites to take down posts about the government's response that it says could incite panic. Regardless of who's to blame, the U.S., the U.K., and other countries are now sending supplies to help. COVID tests, PPE, oxygen, and ventilators. Experts say that help is crucial, not just for India, but for the world. Because the more cases there are anywhere, the higher likelihood that new COVID variants emerge and could spread around the world. That's already happening with this surge in India. A new strain that originated there last year is now popping up all over the world including in the US. Longer term, public health experts say ramping up vaccinations will be key to India's recovery. Even though India is the world's biggest manufacturer of vaccines, less than 2% of the country's 1.4 billion people are fully vaccinated. That's why the US has said it's sending India raw materials to make more COVID vaccines. The US is also getting ready to send up to 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine overseas, and India's expecting a big share of those. That aid is crucial, but could arrive too late to turn things around. That's led some US senators to write to President Biden saying the US has to do more, and that especially since the US is starting to get a handle on COVID, it's more important than ever to control the virus where it's most devastating. Over half of the adult U.S. population has received one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, which is great news as the U.S. aims for herd immunity. But it turns out we're inching, not sprinting, towards that threshold for a few reasons, including one thing we've been hearing about more and more, vaccine hesitancy. To clear the noise, we called up someone who's been investigating vaccine hesitancy and how public health officials can address it. My name is Lavanya Vasudevan. I'm an assistant professor in family medicine and community health at Duke University. Let's start with the basics. What is vaccine hesitancy?
2: Vaccine hesitancy is defined as the intentional decision to delay or refuse vaccines, despite vaccines being available to you.
0: Vaccine hesitancy in the US isn't exactly a new phenomenon
2: even before we got into this COVID-19 pandemic situation, we were seeing vaccine preventable outbreaks throughout the US. In fact, there is data to show that in 2019, every single state in the US had some vaccine preventable outbreak or the other. So was it flu or measles or HIPAA? So at this point of time, we are seeing some of the ramifications of that existing vaccine hesitancy but one that has been really exacerbated in the context of this pandemic. And the fact that we did not necessarily have a vaccine already available complicated the situation in the context of vaccine hesitancy because anytime you have a new vaccine, you need to develop trust around the
0: vaccine. That trust needs to build over time. And in the case of the COVID vaccine, it actually has. Recent polling shows that now that the vaccine has been around for a few months, More Americans say they're willing to get it. But according to an NPR poll from March, around one in four Americans still isn't willing to roll up their sleeve. And Dr. Vasudevan says we can chalk that up to a number of things.
2: The reasons why some of these people are hesitant to get the vaccinations is just because their information bubble, their trusted resources are communicating a different message to them. My trusted community, my information bubble is communicating a message to me that I believe in. So the question is, how do we break into those information bubbles with messaging that can actually influence people to change behaviors?
0: Cue the federal government and local governments trying to do just that, and sometimes thinking pretty outside the box. Like in West Virginia, where the governor is offering $100 to young people willing to roll up their sleeve. It's hard to say no to cash, but Dr. Vasudevan worries about how sustainable that approach really is. With
2: incentives, there is a fine line (laughs) between actually being incentivized in the short-term versus expecting that in the long-term. So we don't want any negative effects from any of these incentivizing campaigns to overflow into other vaccination behaviors, right? So if we give people money to get the COVID vaccine, we don't want them to start expecting money for every single vaccination, right?
0: A less risky, though definitely less flashy approach involves clearly communicating with U.S. adults about the benefits and risks of getting the vaccine. Basically, just a messaging campaign.
2: I think the main approach that has been undertaken by the federal government and the state and local agencies is to roll out these um, messaging campaigns which talk about essentially four things. The first is why is it important to get vaccinated? And that includes what's in it for people. The other thing that the messaging has focused on is really the efficacy of the vaccine and telling people that if you do get it, the vaccines work and they do prevent COVID, right? The third thing is the focus on safety, how safe the vaccines are, how the risks from vaccines are very rare. And the final thing that the communication campaigns have focused on is the access piece. You know, where do you get it? How can we make this vaccine more easily available to you?
0: So those are the goals of vaccine campaign messaging. But how state and local governments try to communicate all of that is a different story.
2: There is no one-size-fit-all approach. You have to use multiple strategies because everybody responds to different strategies.
0: One strategy? Good old PSAs. Maybe you were on YouTube and stumbled on Dolly Parton. Hey,
1: it's me. I'm finally gonna get my vaccine. I'm so excited.
0: Or maybe you've seen this.
1: I'm Morgan Freeman. I'm not a doctor, but I trust science. And I'm told that for some reason people trust me.
0: Even former presidents are getting involved in vaccine PSAs.
1: This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug
0: her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening
1: day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium.
0: The World Health Organization and other medical professionals say having celebs and other influential people promote the vaccine is a useful tactic. But it's not the only one. Dr. Vasudevan says really effective campaigns are focused less on Hollywood and more on your neighborhood.
2: We have heard reports about communities where healthcare providers and other researchers have actually gone in and communicated about the vaccine. um, And that has led to improvements in vaccination rates. I think one specific campaign that I'm really impressed with is the NOLA Sleeves Up campaign, which... It's really nice because it incorporates not just local leaders and community members in the campaign, but it also incorporates the culture of music and dance. I'm getting the vaccine so we can have Mardi Gras, y'all. Sleeve up, Nola. Sleeve up, Nola. Sleeve Sleeve up, up, Nola.
0: Dr. Vasudevan told us the reason local leaders and doctors are key in the fight against vaccine hesitancy is because they've already established trust with people which is especially important because vaccine hesitancy is rooted in deep mistrust. When
2: you get to really hesitant populations, we know that some of those mass messaging you know, campaigns are not sufficient to activate a behavior. And so that's where you need to then start engaging people more on that one-on-one level. And we do need to mobilize this community force, uh, task force, that actually does that one-on-one communication at the community level, but don't forget that we already have a really strong group of advocates and health providers, right? So they are already communicating with patients. So just thinking about how do we equip them to make stronger recommendations, give them the information. So if somebody comes and says, I have these five comorbidities, should I get the vaccine or not? That they have the necessary information and the communication tools to respond to those individuals.
0: Taking a step back, there are a lot of efforts underway to convince Americans to roll up their sleeves, and there's no one winning approach to take. What we do know is that while Oscar winners and big government campaigns have a lot of reach, so do all of us within our own communities. If you're thinking about starting a conversation with anyone who's hesitant in your own life, Dr. Vasudevan has some advice.
2: Start with empathy. Right. In most of my experience speaking with parents and, and other individuals making vaccination decisions, they're genuinely concerned about some aspect of vaccinations. So I think taking time to really understand what their views are, what their concerns are, that would be the first step I would recommend before actually starting to address and, and telling them why they should get vaccinated. So I think beginning with empathy is really, really important.
0: Sleep. Everybody loves it, but since the pandemic started, it feels like we're not getting enough. Some of us are finding it hard to get to sleep, some of us are having weird dreams, and some of us are staying up way later than we used to. Either way, a lot of us are hitting snooze until it's two minutes before our first work call. When we ask skimmers to tell us about habits they want to break one year into COVID, a lot of you mention things about sleep. So if it ever feels like it's just you dealing with this, it's not. And the pandemic is making it worse. One term doctors are using? corona Last June, the CDC found that rates of depression and anxiety were three to four times higher than the year before. And things are still bad. According to one study from February, one in three adults continues to experience sleep issues and anxiety at least once a week. And even if you can go to sleep, there's another issue, waking up and feeling ready for the day. The Skims health writer Carly Malenbaum gave us a few tips we can try.
1: If you're looking at trying to, in the long term, fix your sleep habits, what you're going to want to do is wake up at around the same time, go to bed at around the same time. And those times when you are up, try to get sunlight or any kind of light as soon as
0: possible. And those times when you're ready to go to bed, Try to be in the dark, not look at screens. And when it's time to start winding down for the night. Breathing exercises
1: really can help you get into a good mindset and get ready for sleep.
0: During the day, if we're really struggling, well, there's a bonus to working from home.
1: Naps can be helpful, especially just 20 minutes. It'll get you into the first
0: stages of sleep and will help you feel refreshed afterwards. Those are good tips. But in researching more about sleep issues a lot of other people have been facing recently, we came across a new phrase that really spoke to us.
1: Do you find yourself staying up way too late because you don't have enough leisure time for yourself? Perhaps you're binge watching a new show, maybe scrolling through social media. You know, there's a name for that. It's called Revenge Bedtime Procrastination.
0: Revenge Bedtime Procrastination. We had to learn more, so we called Dr. Fuchsia Sirwa. She's a researcher on health and human psychology at the University of Sheffield, and one of the world's leading experts on procrastination. You know, it's the
1: voluntary and unnecessary delay of an intended and important task,
0: despite, and here's the real kicker, despite knowing you'll be worse off for doing so. Sarah Waugh says bedtime procrastination is actually a pretty new concept that came up when researchers in the Netherlands did a study and found oh wow, this is actually really common.
1: People were saying, all right, you know, I've got an important interview tomorrow. I've got an important day coming up. I really need to get to bed early. And yet they were like, you know, two, three hours past their intended bedtime, surfing social media or reading. Then of course the next day, recognizing that this isn't good for me. Like I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm not gonna be able to perform my best.
0: If you feel incredibly seen right now, Apparently, early research shows bedtime procrastination is on the rise since the start of the pandemic. And that's concerning for two reasons. First, routinely getting too little sleep is associated with a range of health problems, from a weakened immune system to a heightened risk factor for diabetes or heart issues. And second, Sir Wah says bedtime procrastination is a hard habit to break.
1: You get an immediate reward, but the cost comes later. And then and even just your own self criticism or self-judgments about, oh, what did I do? Why am I doing this sort of thing? Why am I procrastinating? And you start the shame spiral. And then that negative mood filters right back in on top of what you were already feeling bad about, making you feel worse and putting you in this sort of spiral of procrastinating. And that's where you can take just doing it occasionally and it can turn into something more habitual, or so sort of what we call chronic procrastination, where it's almost like a personality trait now. And that's your sort of your MO for dealing with uncomfortable things.
0: While other sleep-related problems can sometimes be addressed by shaking up our sleep routines or taking a nap, Sir Wah says addressing sleep procrastination requires a different approach. That's because it's often our negative feelings, not a physical inability to sleep, that's at the root of the problem. So
1: the first thing is obviously to find other ways to regulate those
0: negative feelings, right? That can start by realizing that even though it's tempting to respond to stress or anxiety by avoiding them, that's the exact response that leads to bedtime procrastination in the first place.
1: We have to become aware that that's going on and ask, why am I feeling this way? Be curious about those negative feelings rather than running away from them. And then there's a number of different approaches that can be used. There's some hardcore research showing that gratitude people who practice sort of the simple three good things, or what are three things that you're grateful for today? What are three good things that happened to you today? And just sort of reflecting on those before they go to sleep actually had slept longer and had better sleep quality. And the reason was is that it helped dial down those negative pre-sleep thoughts that tend to keep people up at night or keep wake them up in the middle of the night. Also, one of the areas that I've looked at is something called self-compassion, where you basically don't give yourself such a hard time about the procrastinating because that just layers on top of it, right? So you you say, yeah, I stayed up later than I wanted to. I'm not too happy with myself about it. With self-compassion, it's recognizing that you're human. You're not the first person to engage a bedtime procrastination, nor will you be the last, But that doesn't mean you have to kind of be happy with that behavior either you can still be unhappy with it and then that will give you the motivation now that you've taken down the shame and all those self-critical thoughts it just feed back into that negative loop and it puts you in a more level place where you can be a little bit more okay where do i want to be with this i need to you know break this habit and i need to kind of get back on a regular sleep schedule
0: if you want to read more about dr Sirwa's research learn more about revenge sleep procrastination or just want to know how to get a good night's sleep, check out the links in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.